Today's scripture is out of Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 to 33. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you have not gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And when you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both and the body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But when the hairs, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before the Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is God's word. You may be seated. <coughs> well, good morning. My name is uh, Mark Hoxo, and uh, it's my privilege to be able to uh, stand here this morning to uh, preach the Word of God. And so, uh, as you uh, just heard, this is a this is a lengthy text. So, uh, in the time that we have, I'm not going to be able to go over every single verse and um, explain everything that's going on here. But, but basically, what we have is. Um, you know, uh, a warning by Christ about uh, what the disciples will have to face, you know, as they go out on mission for him. And so we're going to just take a look at a few uh, distinct parts of that as we go through the text this morning. But this text is really just a continuation of where we left off last Sunday. Um, the instructions that Jesus had already started giving to his disciples concerning their upcoming mission. Now, in last week's passage, we read and we heard about the specific men that Jesus had selected uh, to, to go out and to proclaim the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. Now, to these men, Christ had, had given the authority and the power to heal the sick and to raise the dead, to cleanse uh, leprosy and to cast out demons. Now, he gave them specific directions on the level of faith that is going to be required for a mission of this type. <clears throat> now, he said that uh, preparedness for a mission like this uh, was not to be undertaken in the same way as any former journey that they had ever been on. 
he said that they should acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, uh, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. So that was the type of mission that he was sending them on. It was one where they were to <clears throat> go on the mission completely trusting that God was going to be providing for them. Now in today's passage that we're studying, Christ is warning his disciples about what they can expect and how they can expect to be treated as they faithfully execute his calling. And even though this was initially directed toward the disciples, those 12 that he sent out, uh, it's very much meant uh, for all who would ever trust in Jesus for salvation and desire to be his disciple. <clears throat> now after carefully reading in studying this text, I have concluded that this is a part of Scripture that is never used by teachers of the prosperity gospel to advance their own skewed version of the way that a Christian's life uh, should be. Uh, in fact, uh, God in this, in this passage does not promise us riches or wealth. He doesn't promise us popularity, long life, or good health. Rather, the disciples can be expected to be hated by all kinds of people, including their own family members. They can expect to be falsely accused by both religious people and those who rule in government. Scourging and even death may be in their future if they are obedient to the call of Jesus. But even in the face of the hardships and the trials that they were sure to face, as well as the joy and the triumph of performing miracles by the power of God, Jesus gave them the real reason to rejoice. In the, the Gospel of Luke, uh, we're told about another group of 72 disciples that Jesus sent out on a similar mission. And when they returned, they were exuberant with what they had been able to accomplish through the power of God. They were they were just uh, bragging almost about how they had been driving out demons in the name of Jesus Christ. But what did Jesus tell them? He said, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So Jesus said he was sending his disciples out as sheep among wolves. Now, <clears throat> we know that sheep are not the smartest animals on the farm they're often the most defenseless and the most helpless of, of all domesticated animals. Uh, they're often as panicked by harmless things as they are by the really dangerous things. And when real danger comes, they have little natural uh, defense except for running, and they're not even very good at that. And uh, being that defenseless, they are easy prey for predators. In the Middle East, they had wolves. And... Uh, it was the shepherd's job, the shepherd's responsibility to protect the sheep from the wolves. Now, it was normal for a wolf to seek out the sheep and to come where the sheep were and to, uh, to try and attack the sheep. But here we have Jesus actually sending the twelve out from their safety and their security to go out into the world where the wolves are and to basically walk right into their midst. 
Now, in John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. As the good shepherd, we know that Jesus loves his sheep with, with an eternal, divine love. He knows his sheep, and he cares deeply for them. So why in the world would he tell his sheep to go out amongst the wolves? Well, I think it's because this is the way which it was designed by God through Jesus and then to uh, his disciples that those lost sheep that were still out there, the way that they will hear the voice of the Good Shepherd is through the testimony of the sheep already found. But in warning them about what was to come, Jesus is letting them know that before it happens, what the cost of discipleship will be. He's letting them know what pain and what rejection and persecution they will face because of him. Jesus didn't attract followers by telling them how their lives would improve if only they would sit at his feet and listen to his teachings and follow him. No, even as he would face opposition and persecution from the God-haters of this world, he made it clear from the very beginning that they would as well. Too often, I believe, sinners are enticed to come to Jesus with the promise that everything that is wrong or bad in their lives will go away and blessings will shower upon them from heaven in abundant measure if only they will accept Jesus as their personal Savior. Now, we are so blind in today's world about what the true cost of discipleship is. Um, for millions before us, what it's been, and for many around the world today, that we will oftentimes persuade unbelievers with promises of comfort and ease. But Jesus made no such offer. He only promises hardship, suffering, and death. Yes, it's true that he also offers rest for your soul, as when he says, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But the promise is the rest that we need for our souls. But the promise is not necessarily for ease and comfort in this life. Now, some people in their uh, zeal to follow Christ have taken upon themselves the notion that persecution must be sought out. Uh, in order to prove to themselves or to others that they are actually true followers of Christ because they are being persecuted, as Jesus promised we would. But in telling us that we are to be as shrewd as serpents, uh, we know that, that that's the wrong approach to take. In, in much of ancient lore, serpents were considered to be a wise creature. They were considered to be really uh, uh, cautious, shrewd, cunning and, and the like. And, and by Christ telling us that we are to be shrewd as serpents as we go out into the world to proclaim the kingdom of heaven, he's saying that we are to emulate those characteristics of the serpent. In other words, he says, we should be thoughtful regarding our interactions with the unbelieving world in how we go about proclaiming the gospel. As Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible answer man, is fond of saying, the gospel is offensive to the world enough as it is. We don't need to add to the offense by how we go about communicating it. 
Paul advises us also, he says, to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. He also tells them to be as innocent as doves. Now, doves are harmless. Doves are gentle. And they kind of, in this sense, represent the innocence and the purity that the disciples possess. The faithful disciple. This simply means that while remaining true to the Word of God and uncompromising in our proclaiming of the Gospel, again, we don't carry it out in a way that is abrasive, coarse, inconsiderate, belligerent, rude. We are to be wise and discerning while being peaceful and innocent. This is the struggle that we as Christians have. We are to be careful. At the same time, we are to be bold in our proclamation of the truth of the Gospel. But at the same time, we are, are to be willing to be mocked or mistreated by others for the sake of the Gospel and for the sake of Christ. Now, being shrewd or wise means that sometimes we avoid situations or we avoid people when you know there will be persecution. Paul himself uh, tells a story in Corinthians about how when he was in Damascus, he was lowered out of a window um, to, uh, in a basket so that he could escape because the governor of the land had actually um, set things up to try to arrest Paul. But he and his friends allowed him to be able to escape. Sometimes when we are communicating the gospel with someone that we know, they may become hostile. They may be complete completely hostile toward the gospel or toward us. Uh, again, the harvest is plentiful, as we heard last week. The laborers are few. Even as the, the disciples went into villages, Jesus told them that if they don't hear you, if they don't, if they, they don't hear what you have to say, if they don't receive it, he says, or if, they're, if you're under persecution, leave that town and go to the next. So in the same way, we have permission to, to go to the next person. We don't have to focus all of our energy on any one person who is hostile or indifferent. Of course, we should continue to pray for, for everyone that is in our sphere of influence. Another important point, or one that I already mentioned, is the cons- or no, actually, I didn't mention this one. Um, it's, it's important to consider that godly lives are not marked by continual suffering and hardship. Uh, inflicted upon them by opponents of the gospel. Not even Christ or the apostles um, endured endless persecution, endless suffering, and um, but at various times and in various places uh, during the course of our lives, to one degree or another, those who are faithful to God can expect to face uh, the hostility of those who reject Christ and his message. Now, Christ continues and says to beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts, flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So I think as we look at this passage, and we look at when Jesus uh, gave these directions to the 12 disciples that he had chosen, uh, 
in order to apply this passage of Scripture correctly, uh, we have to understand that the fulfillment of this passage was not meant to occur all during this brief mission that the disciples went out on. But rather, it's meant to be fulfilled uh, from that point forward throughout all of redemptive history, uh, all the way up until the very end when Christ returns. Uh, on the mission that these disciples went, they healed the sick, they cleansed lepers, they cast out demons, but there doesn't seem to be any indication or record of them actually raising the dead during this time. Now we know that after Christ died and, and resurrected and went on to heaven to be with his Father, we know that the disciples did all manner of uh, uh, signs and wonders such as these, including raising the dead. Um, and also, on this mission, they didn't suffer that type of persecution either. Uh, it's not until after the day of Pentecost that persecution really uh, hit the church hard. And we know that they suffered lots of persecution. Now, Jesus warns that persecution will come from various places. He says it comes from the religious community. <clears throat> he said it also comes from the government. Uh, comes from our own families, and it comes from society in general. Now, Jesus himself suffered the most from those who were religious, the uh, Pharisees of his day and other Jewish sects during his time. Uh, he also suffered under the Roman government. Uh, as the apostles labored to build the church, uh, the book of Acts describes to us how many of them suffered at the hands of both the religious and those in government. The Apostle Paul himself suffered uh, tremendously during the course of his life of ministry. And he records in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 uh, what he had to endure for the sake of Christ. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how or when Paul died. But we do know from historical writings of others, and uh, the evidence is, is significantly good, and uh, it indicates that Paul was beheaded in Rome under the Emperor Nero sometime around 63 or 64 A.D. Now, we get a good sense that Paul was preparing for his death when he wrote to Timothy, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So then Jesus says, when they deliver you over, 
Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Now the disciples were told, Jesus warned them ahead of time, they would be dragged before governors and kings to bear witness before them and the Gentiles, and that God himself would be speaking through them. And we see this unfolding in the book of Acts, in the martyrdom of Stephen, as told in Acts chapter 7. And I want to take a look at that. Stephen is the first of the New Testament leaders in, in the New Testament church to be martyred. And he gave a stirring testimony, as Jesus said they would. After taking those who accused him on a crash course of Old Testament history, he concludes his oratory with these potent words of rebuke to those who are preparing to kill him. He says to them, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, those who heard him say that were so enraged by this, the Bible says that they ground their teeth at him. But it also says that Stephen, being filled with the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They couldn't stand to hear any more of it. So they plugged their ears. They took him out of town and they threw stones at him. But even as the stones were striking him, he cried out to God. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Well, the persecution of faithful believers continued. Many thousands have given their lives for the sake of Christ. It's often been said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And it's always been the case that when the church has experienced the highest level of persecution, that is when the church has experienced the most growth. Under the persecution of the early Christians, the young church exploded. Untold numbers of sinners came to believe in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No matter how hard kings, governors, councils tried to put an end to the spread of the gospel, they could not succeed. Faithful disciples refused to, to deny their Lord and Savior and pledge allegiance to Caesar or to someone else. Many stories exist about the final testimonies of those who faced execution 
for their devotion to Christ. One of my favorites is the story of Polycarp from the second century. Now, Polycarp was the pastor of the church in Smyrna. Smyrna was a church that was located in modern-day Turkey. Now, Polycarp was mentored by the Apostle John himself. And at the age of 86, he was captured, arrested, and executed by the Roman authorities before a cheering crowd. Now, there is an account of this this whole thing. Uh, It was written by the church at Smyrna to some other churches. And it's called the Martyrdom of Polycarp. And in that account, you you basically have a first-hand eyewitness account. And it's written kind of in epistolary form, just like um, many of the uh, books of the Bible are written. But it's interesting, when you read the story of Polycarp, here's a man who who was uh, a dearly beloved person. uh, And he loved Jesus. And it's very obvious and very apparent as you read his account of of his uh, martyrdom, how much he he did. But uh, he says that three days before he was uh, arrested, he had a dream, a vision from God, which said that he was going to be burned to death. And so in that time, um, his uh, friends actually hid him because they didn't want him to be arrested and and, um, burned. Um, And the... He told his disciples or his friends, uh, he said, that's enough. You don't need to hide me anymore. He goes, I'm here. If they want to come and get me, they come again. Well, uh, sure enough, the next day or two, they came to his home to get him. Um, Several different soldiers came to arrest him. (coughs) When they came to his home, he told his friends, let him come in. They came in. He said, what would you guys like to eat and drink? So they said, yeah, we'll eat, drink. So he fed them, made sure they had enough food made sure they had enough to drink. And then he said, before you take me, let me just spend a little time praying. So it says that he prayed for two hours. For two hours he prayed while these men waited. And several of these men actually repented during that time because of the the, the power of the prayer that they heard. And they were amazed that they were coming to arrest such a just person as this. But nonetheless, they had orders to bring him in. So they brought him in. And of course, he was given the he was given the, uh, the, uh, to the command to, to, um, to take an oath and to curse Christ. And uh, his, this is the famous line that you've probably heard him say. This is what Polycarp told those who told him to curse Christ. He says, 86 years I have served him, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And the story continues. They they insisted. They said, swear by the fortune of Caesar. And he says, if you vainly suppose that I shall swear by the fortune of Caesar as you say and pretend that you do not know who I am, listen plainly, I am a Christian. But if you desire to learn the teaching of Christianity, appoint the time and give me a hearing. The proconsul said, no, try to persuade these people. Because there's all these people. And and he says... uh, He goes, look, he says, we're taught as Christians that we are to submit to our governing authorities, and so 
I'll give you an account and a defense. But he goes, as far as these people out here, he goes, I, I'm not here to defend, defend anything to them. And so then the, the proconsul said, he goes, I have wild beasts. He goes, I shall throw them to you if you don't change your mind. He goes, call them. He goes, for repentance from the better to the worse is not permitted us, but it is noble to change from what is evil to what is righteous. And then the guy told him, he goes, well, I'm going to have you consumed by fire if you despise the wild beasts unless you change your mind. Polycarp said, the fire you threaten with burns but an hour and is quenched after a little. For you do not know the fire of the coming judgment and everlasting punishment that is laid up for the impious. But why do you delay? Come, do what you will. So as at this time, it's decided that he's going to be burned at the stake. And when they prepare to nail his hands behind his head, like this, on the stake, he convinces them that, you know, the same God who's allowing him to be here right now um, to be uh, put to death, he says, it's the same God who will give him the strength to be able to withstand the fire such as it is. So they did not nail him, but they tied him. They used ropes to tie him instead. And it says here that with his hands put behind him, and tied like a noble ram out of a great flock, ready for sacrifice, a burnt offering, ready and acceptable to God. He looked up into heaven, and he prayed one more time before his death. And I'm going to read you the prayer, because I think it's powerful. He said, Lord God Almighty, Father of thy beloved and blessed servant Jesus Christ, through whom we have received full knowledge of thee, the God of angels and powers and all creation, and of the whole race of the righteous who live in thy presence, I bless thee because thou hast deemed me worthy of this day and hour to take my part in the number of the martyrs in the cup of thy Christ. For resurrection to eternal life of soul and body in the immortality of the Holy Spirit, among whom may I be received in thy presence this day as a rich and acceptable sacrifice, just as thou hast prepared and revealed beforehand and fulfilled that thou art the true God without any falsehood. For this and for everything I praise thee, I bless thee, I glorify thee through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, thy beloved servant, through whom be glory with thee, with him, and Holy Spirit, both now and unto the ages to come. Amen. After this, they brought out the wood, and they attempted to burn him. However, the fire formed sort of a vaulted chamber around his body, or as it says, kind of a sail on a ship. And those who were around him witnessing the event said that he sat in the midst of the flame as though he were like bread baking in an oven or gold or silver being refined in a furnace but his flesh was not being consumed. Now, those near him reported noticing a smell of incense or that of some other spices. Well, after a while, the executioners realized that nothing was happening to him. So one of them was ordered to end his life with a stab of a dagger. And after he was stabbed, an inordinate amount of blood flowed from the wound so much blood that it completely extinguished the fire around him. 
So after that, of course, he was dead. They restarted the fire, and they burned his body completely to ashes. Many other stories out there exist. And I think that in some ways it's good for us to, every once in a while, read those stories to see how much others have had to suffer. Um, there's another story of an of a Archbishop of Canterbury, this was in the, uh, during the time of Reformation, who was accused of heresy, and uh, when he was brought to the fire, uh, his, his speech was simply this. He said, um, I haven't, you know, I don't, I don't recant for anything that, I, that I've said. The only thing that right now I repent of is because during my time as, uh, you know, during the time I've been accused, I've actually written some things in response that aren't true, hoping that I would never get to this place. But now that I'm here, he goes, those were all untrue, what I wrote in my defense. And he said, because this hand is what wrote those things, this shall be the first to go in the fire. So when the fire came, he actually put his right hand in the fire first, and uh, then he was, was burned as well. Um, many have given their lives. Many have suffered mightily for the cause of Christ. But even as Candace said um, earlier, uh, many around the world in various places are persecuted for their faith in Jesus. However, we live uh, in such a time and place where we do not suffer as these rest do. We have enjoyed the freedom to live and believe as Christians for several hundred years now. But these freedoms that we do now possess where whereby we can gather even this morning to freely and publicly proclaim our love for Jesus Christ, where we can read from His Word, where we can sing songs of praise and worship for His glory, these freedoms will not be ours forever. As I consider the changes that have occurred uh, politically and culturally here in our nation, only in the course of my own lifetime, it seems to me like the slope of moral decline has steepened drastically, especially in the last five to ten years. Now, if you, <coughs> excuse me, if you've been paying attention at all to what's been going on in our world today, you know what I'm talking about. But needless to say, faithful followers of Christ will be given more and more opportunities to stand for biblical truth in the months and in the years to come. That's why I believe that this passage that we're studying is actually just as relevant now as it always has been. Brother will be delivered, brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Now Christ wants us to understand that there's no safety necessarily among friends, or among family. Even today, stories abound of persons who are isolated, abused, and sometimes killed by their own family members when they convert to Christianity. This is particularly true among the Muslim populations of the world. So do not neglect to pray regularly for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who face persecution for their bold declaration of salvation through Jesus Christ alone.
But what can we say of our situation today? How is it that this passage is actually relevant for us? We really don't have persecution, do we? I mean, when was the last time you heard of someone in these United States who was burned at the stake or who actually had to, who was beaten for their faith? Now, sometimes there are. There are isolated cases where where Christians are uh, beaten or uh, abused for their just for standing up for Jesus Christ. But it's not sanctioned at this point by our government. Um, there's not any uh, active uh, religious groups out there who are persecuting Christians. But um, we all clearly face situations from time to time, whether at work or with friends or with family, where we are given the choice to openly uh, declare our faith in Christ or face some consequence. may not be a beating, but it may come in the form of just ridicule or scorn or disgust or mockery. You know, uh, some of these moral positions that the Bible teaches clearly in which the church has always been united are, are becoming less and less popular in our world today. Consider for a moment, if you will, so-called same-sex marriage. What was once a matter of clarity among all churches, and even in our culture at large, has become an issue where if you disagree with the prevailing thought in our culture today, now you have become an intolerant bigot. Now, disagreeing with such moral decline may bring opportunities to speak about who is our authority and who do we submit to over and above laws and over and above governors. Ultimately, our calling as disciples of Christ is to confess Him and to not deny Him, as our text clearly communicates to us. The truest test of discipleship is, as Jesus says, endurance. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So then Jesus continues and says not to have any fear. He says, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So, Jesus says, we have no real reason to fear. He says, there's a lot of things that you've learned. A lot of things that I've told you. There's a lot of things that I've communicated to you quietly. He says, but when you go out there, shout it from the rooftops. Let people know what the truth of the gospel is. Let people know 
who they are and who I am as, as Lord and Savior of this world. And do not fear. You see, whenever you're up against someone who is threatening you and telling you to curse Christ or die, those are the ones that they can only take your body. They can only take your life. But Jesus says, there's more to that life than that. Fear the one who's able to take both body, destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, there's something that I think is very important to understand about this. Persecution clarifies our position in Christ. We either belong to Him or we don't. What I mean is that when we stand for Jesus in the face of those who would rather that we deny Him, our faith is strengthened. If we find that we are unable to confess Him at all before men, we may not have any faith to begin with. Christ here tells us to have no fear. Without His Spirit living within us, now this is an impossibility. But if He dwells within us, then He will enable us to face those who accuse us without fear. You see, fear is natural. We all have experienced it. We know what it's like to to experience that, that feeling of fear within us. All of us. But the absence of fear in the face of persecution is supernatural. And it comes directly from God in the moment when you need it the most. Just as He promised He would give you the words to speak when you need to testify of Him. So this is what it really comes down to. If you are not a true follower of Christ, you don't have to worry about being persecuted, really. You see, disciples are not persecuted because people don't like them. It's because Christ lives in them that they are persecuted. It's the Christ who lives in you that they hate. According to history, Polycarp was a man who was well-liked. Even the the pagans of his day liked him. But they hated God. And they killed him because God lived in him. Now, Jesus himself is the purest example of how one is to humbly face persecution in this world. Never having sinned, he was brought before councils, brought before governors, and he was accused of crimes that he never committed. He was brutally scourged, beaten, spit upon, mocked, stripped, made to carry heavy lumber up a hill, nailed to a Roman cross where he baked in the sun for hours. Finally, he died. As the prophet Isaiah foretold many years before, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So everyone, Jesus says, who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. You know, as I read this, I think of Peter, who was one of the twelve who heard these words for the very first time, coming from Jesus himself. Just a few short years later, Peter had three opportunities to declare boldly his faith in Christ. 
And three times he failed. After having failed, the Bible tells us that Peter went out, remembering what Jesus had told him just before, that before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. He went out and he wept bitterly. Later, after Jesus had died, and after he had lain in the grave for three days and come back to life, John tells us that they were having breakfast together, Jesus and his disciples. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, it is believed that Peter became the leader of the church in Rome. And in about AD 64, again under the Emperor Nero, he was crucified upside down because he did not consider himself to be worthy to be crucified in the same manner as Jesus. Now, the reason I close with these verses is because I want you to be encouraged. Jesus restores sinners. Even, even though Peter denied him three times, Jesus was willing and able to forgive him and fully restore him. So much so that he became willing to lay down his life for his risen Savior. As Christians, we make mistakes Sometimes we really make a mess out of things. We're a lot like Peter. So willing to die with Christ one moment and then denying Him the next. Now as the new name of our church indicates, we are all on the restoration road. He's constantly at work in us, transforming us from one degree of glory to another to look more and more like Jesus. If you're a believer this morning, this is your hope. If you've never surrendered your life to Him, if you are not a Christian, I encourage you, I plead with you to come to Him this morning for the very first time and receive the salvation of your soul. Then, join the rest of us as we journey on this restoration road, following Jesus wherever He leads. Warning. It may lead to persecution, may lead to suffering, may even lead to death. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can gather as free people where we can boldly, publicly, 